Albert Einstein once said, quote, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones, end quote. AKA, were some catalyst to cause the outbreak of World War III and both the U.S. and Soviet Union used their nukes on each other, we'd be lucky if we blasted ourselves back into the Stone Age, as during the time, both global superpowers had the nuclear capacity to destroy the whole world several times over. And Einstein should know a thing or two about the horrific nature of the weapons the United States and the Soviet Union had been building since the Manhattan Project. In the build-up to the U.S. involvement in World War II in 1939, Einstein had written a letter to President Roosevelt warning him of the possibility that the Germans were doing research into developing nuclear weapons and suggested that the United States begin doing their own research on atomic energy before it was too late. Even though German scientists ultimately failed to create the atomic bomb first, which is probably pretty fortunate because it's almost guaranteed that they would have used it against the Allies in some capacity, the top-secret Manhattan Project, which Einstein was shunned from due to his well-known pacifist leanings, ultimately was a success. President Harry Truman, after learning about the atomic bombs produced by the Manhattan Project, gave the order to drop them on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in an effort to end the war without further loss of American lives via a full-scale invasion of Japan. Truman, as well as the many, many soldiers and Marines who had participated in the island-hopping campaign in the Pacific, saw how the ferocity and desperation of the Japanese soldiers increased drastically the closer the Americans got to mainland Japan. I mean, just think about the death toll for the battles on Iwo Jima and Okinawa, especially the death toll on the Japanese side, and how many, or rather how few, were taken prisoner. On the American side, the projected casualties from a full-scale invasion of Japan were projected at somewhere between 100,000 and 500,000. So big numerical difference, definitely spitballing, but either way, these projected casualties, even on the low ball end, were horrific, and this was absolutely unacceptable to Truman, not when he had found out that he had atomic bombs at his disposal that just required a single plane to drop, and hopefully by using them and the destruction that came with them would enable him to bring the Empire of Japan finally to its knees. And yet, before the bomb was dropped, despite clear indicators that Japan had already lost, despite you know the vicious firebombings of their major cities, which were absolutely horrific, the Japanese government would not call it quits. It seemed that they were content to fight to the last man, to the last woman, to the last child in order to protect their empire. And so in order to prevent a tragedy for both sides, the world was ushered into the atomic age at 8.15 in the morning on August 6, 1945, when the atomic bomb named Little Boy was dropped on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. And I know there's a little irony in the idea of dropping an atomic bomb to prevent a tragedy, but that was essentially the idea that we don't want to lose any more American lives. So if we have this weapon, we have to use it in order to save American lives. The immediate as well as the long-lasting devastation of this is well recounted by eyewitnesses in John Hersey's book Hiroshima, as according to history.com, the explosion immediately wiped out an estimated 80,000 people, while tens of thousands more would later die of radiation exposure. So just to give you a sense of what this was like on the grounds on Hiroshima on the day that the bomb was dropped, I pulled a few quotes from John Hersey's book. 
first one goes like this, quote, their faces were wholly burned. Their eye sockets were hollow. The fluid from their melted eyes had run down their cheeks, end quote. Next quote, the eyebrows of some were burned off and skin hung from their faces and hands. Others, because of pain, held their arms up as if carrying something in both hands. Some were vomiting as they walked. Many were naked or in shreds of clothing. On some undressed bodies, the burns had made patterns of undershirt straps and suspenders. And on the skin of some women, the shapes of flowers they had had on their kimonos. Many, although injured themselves, supported relatives who were worse off. Almost all had their heads bowed, looked straight ahead, were silent, and showed no expression whatsoever. Quote, yes, people of Hiroshima died manly in the atomic bombing, believing that it was for the emperor's sake. Quote, under many houses, people screamed for help, but no one helped. In general, survivors that day assisted only their relatives or immediate neighbors, for they could not comprehend or tolerate a wider circle of misery. Unquote. Quote, such clouds of dust had risen that there was a sort of twilight around, end quote. And the last quote uh, refers to this person, Nakamura-san. It goes, quote, The class of people to which Nakamura-san belonged came, therefore, to be called by a more neutral name, Hibukusha, literally, explosion-affected persons, end quote. And then three days later, a second atomic bomb was dropped on the city of Nagasaki. Shortly after, on August 15, 1945, Emperor Hirohito finally surrendered, ending World War II, but just beginning a whole new stage of warfare. There are few alive today, and with each passing day, even fewer, who actually witnessed the world's entrance into the atomic age. Albert Einstein is one of those people, and his quote about World War III and IV therefore contains wisdom, as well as a stern warning. Because for those alive at the time, how could they fathom the incineration of nearly 100,000 people in an instant? And now, 77 years later, how can we fathom it? Albert Einstein died in 1955, seven years before the Cuban Missile Crisis brought humanity as close as it had come to date to putting Einstein's quote to the test. And the weapons available to both superpowers at the time had the potential to be 1,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb. The weapons and their intended usage can, at least in my view, best be compared to a prize fight between two heavyweight boxers. One boxer would throw the first punch and could only hope that it would be enough to knock his opponent out before his opponent could hurl the counterpunch. The future of warfare, it seemed, would take place not on the battlefield, but by striking the enemy hard and fast with nukes in an attempt to wipe him out before he could get his nukes in the air that will wipe you out. Which means that peace, or so it seemed, rested on nuclear deterrence, meaning that both sides would have enough nukes to make it a fool's errand to launch what you had at an enemy who was just as well equipped as you were. Now, in the last episode of the Almost President's podcast, which if you haven't already listened to it, you might consider doing so before we get any further, um, we went into depth about how the Cuban Missile Crisis played out and how nuclear war was averted, but just barely. What you're about to hear in this supplementary episode is a story that wasn't fully unpacked and understood until 2002, 
and it's about a Soviet submarine and the three highest ranking men aboard it who were faced with a deadly choice, a choice that could have led to a much different and more deadly outcome to the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's a true story that feels like a mashup of The Hunt for Red October and 12 Angry Men, and I'll tell you why once we get into it. So brace yourselves for an exciting supplemental episode of the Almost Presidents podcast. Good morning, class. For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important, the President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the president. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be president. So, I first came across this lesser-known story of the Cuban Missile Crisis when I was doing what a lot of us do to kill time, scrolling through social media. I follow a lot of history pages, no surprise, and when I saw a story about the Cold War, which I'm fascinated by, and more specifically about a submarine during the Cold War, which when it comes to submarines, I'm even more fascinated by them, I knew I had to check it out. I think I always thought the submarines were interesting while at the same time understanding that a sub would be probably the last ship I'd ever want to be on for an extended period of time. But maybe that's where the fascination came from. I mean, being out on the ocean can be daunting enough, let alone being way down below the ocean surface for all intents and purposes sealed up in a big metal box. So at the library when my parents would take me when I was younger, I would always take this book off the shelf, a book I knew that I was too young to read called The Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy. And eventually, I grew up. I don't want to say that I'm a mature adult. In many ways, I'm still a kid inside. But I got to a point where intellectually, I knew that if I picked out this book off the shelf, I'd be able to understand it if I read it. And so I went to Barnes & Noble and bought the mass market edition of The Hunt for Red October. And ultimately, the book sent me down this rabbit hole that in many ways, I'm still going down, which is part of the reason why I'm talking to you right now, telling you a story about submarines. And so ultimately, when I finished The Hunt for Red October, I went on to watch every submarine movie I could get my hands on. I watched Greyhound, Black Sea, The Wolf's Call, any World War II documentary involving subs. I watched documentaries about the history of subs, how they're made, what they've done. And you know, admittedly, I have plenty more to watch because I haven't even begun to dig into the classics like Das Boot, Run Silent, Run Deep, or even the adaptation of The Hunt for Red October. But I will say with that one, it is on Netflix and it has been on my list. I've heard great things about it. But Hunt for Red October, given the history that I just told you, my personal history with the book, um, a lot of times when it comes to watching an adaptation of a book that's like so special to you, um, you kind of set yourself up for disappointment because you feel like it'll just never be good as what you imagined it to be. So we'll see. Maybe at some point I'll watch the Hunt for Red October. I'll definitely keep you posted if I do. But Even in real life, um, visiting parts of the Jersey Shore and knowing that at certain places along the Jersey Shore during World War II, there were lookouts for German U-boats. That aspect of the shore fills me with a lot more fascination than the lighthouses there, the other history, the boardwalks, even the hot tubs that people have on their roofs in some part of LBI, which has always been my dream. Um, I feel like that'll be when I'll know that I've made it if I'm sitting in a hot tub on the roof, on the Jersey shore, looking up at the stars. It's how I'll know I've made it. 
even that doesn't fill me with as much fascination and awe as thinking about just people at the Jersey Shore during World War II looking out for enemy submarines. To stay on that German U-boat uh, tangent, unlocking the U-boat in Sid Meier's Civ Six is one of my favorite perks about playing as Germany. So all this is ultimately to say that although I have more enthusiasm about the submarine than your average person and have consumed potentially a bit more submarine-related media than your average person, the story that you're going to hear on today's podcast is, in my opinion, by far the most thrilling and epic sub-related story I've ever heard by a big margin. So let's get started by starting our story at the end. Late in the year 1962, in the wake, no pun intended, of the Cuban Missile Crisis, a flotilla of four Soviet submarines returned home from what was supposed to be a top-secret mission in Cuba. Having been discovered by American subhunters and turned around just outside the U.S. naval blockade of Cuba, the submarine crews were viewed as a disgrace by their superiors for failing to go unnoticed in order to carry out their mission successfully. There was even one admiral who went so far as to say that it would have been better if the crews had gone down with their subs. And given the ordeal that these men had undergone, they endured horrific living conditions aboard their submarines for weeks on end, experienced unimaginable stress due to their isolation from people outside the small world of their submarines, as well as a lack of intelligence coming from Moscow, and a lack of trustworthy intelligence about what was happening on the surface at really at all during the most tense nuclear standoff in human history, the Cuban Missile Crisis, this reaction to them coming home must have felt like a real slap in the face to these submarine crews. But while their mission may have been viewed as a failure in terms of accomplishing its military objective, one major decision that took place aboard one submarine, the B-59, on October 27, 1962, was undoubtedly a victory for the continuation of the human species, which is a heck of a statement. You see, each submarine on this mission was armed with one nuclear torpedo, the use of which would be guaranteed to draw retaliatory strikes from the U.S. and lead to an all-out nuclear war. At this point, I think we might as well introduce the main character of our story. He is the chief of staff of the flotilla and second-in-command of the Soviet sub B-59, a man named Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov, who we'll refer to here on out as just Arkhipov. So Arkhipov had, at the time of the mission, and even for years after the mission, would go on to have this long career in the Soviet Navy. As a matter of fact, the submarine, the ship that he had spent so much of his time in as a naval officer, would ultimately lead to his death down the road in 1998. You see, before his involvement in the Cuban Missile Crisis and his service to mankind aboard the B-59, Arkhipov had served aboard the submarine K-19, which might sound familiar to some people. The K-19 was the submarine that underwent a terrible accident when its reactor coolant system leaked. And this leak threatened a nuclear meltdown, which you don't need to know a lot of submarine terms to know that nuclear meltdown, bad. So to fix the problem, a handful of men aboard the sub had to face high levels of radiation in order to prevent a full reactor meltdown and enable the sub to be repaired enough to get home safely. Unfortunately, however, Due to the high levels of radiation that the men were exposed to, some of the engineers wound up dying within a month of the incident, and the radiation exposure would go on to affect many of the other members of the crew, including Arkhipov, whose death from kidney cancer at age 72 
can be attributed directly back to his exposure to radiation aboard the K-19. And there are those who like to speculate that this experience weighed heavily on his mind on his mission aboard the B-59, but only Arkhipov can really say that for sure, and to our knowledge, he took that information to his grave. But either way, this led to the Soviets using a different model of submarine. These were diesel electric powered submarines. So all four submarines that we'll be discussing in this episode will fall under this category. They're diesel electric powered submarines. And you'll see how that specific type of submarine weighs heavy into what's to come. Anyhow, so as the world was watching developments taking place in Cuba, chiefly the threat of Soviet nuclear missile installations in Cuba and Kennedy's quarantine of Cuba, four Soviet submarines were sent on a top secret mission, the nature of which was known only to a few top members of the party. As a matter of fact, not even those on board the subs knew where they'd be going. Their orders were issued in sealed envelopes to be opened only once they were out at sea. And so, the four subs embarked on a mission, whose details they did not know, traveling to a destination they weren't yet aware of. Once at sea, however, the envelopes were opened and the mission was made clear. These submarines were to head to Cuba to act as the vanguard for Soviet forces that were stationed there. And in addition to the other weaponry aboard, each submarine was equipped with one nuclear torpedo. And in the orders from Moscow, the commanders of each sub were given permission to use their nuclear weapon without authorization from Moscow if they felt threatened by the Americans. And just to put it into perspective, the nuclear torpedoes on board were of comparable strength to the ones dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So you got four subs headed to Cuba, a very perilous situation where it's highly likely that they'll be threatened by the Americans if they're caught. And they have, each one of them, a nuclear torpedo, that has the strength of what was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So tell me how that isn't a recipe for disaster. But, however, there was a catch to this. Each sub's commander wasn't permitted to make the decision to launch what they referred to as their secret weapon on his own. He was given half a key, while each sub's political officer was given the second half. So ultimately, if they wanted to fire their nuclear torpedo, both of these men had to agree and use their half of the key together in order to fire the nuclear torpedo. The B-59, however, was a little different because this was a submarine that Arkhipov was aboard. And since Arkhipov was the fleet commander, he possessed veto power in the event that both the captain and political officer on board agreed to use the weapon. So he was kind of the, the variable in here that the other three subs didn't have to deal with. It was just the captain and political officer aboard those others. But in the B-59's case, Arkhipov also had to be consulted in that decision, and all three had to agree unanimously that they wanted to launch. So returning to Kennedy's quarantine of Cuba for a moment, this quarantine wasn't just composed of stationary ships waiting to stop and search any Soviet ship attempting to cruise past on their way to Cuba. The U.S. military also cast a wide net made up of destroyers, helicopters, as well as surveillance planes who were equipped with the most up-to-date technology. And their purpose was to use their sheer numbers and technology to probe the depths of the ocean for Soviet subs attempting to slip the blockade by going underneath it with a cargo of weapons. As the subs in Arkhipov's fleet make their ocean crossing, communication with Moscow is minimal, and isolation begins to set in. With developments surrounding Cuba changing all the time, the fleet starts to become cut off from the situation unfolding leagues above their heads. That is, 
until the fleet receives orders from Moscow that change their mission. So, two weeks after leaving from a remote naval base in the Arctic Circle, the submarines are ordered to hold their position in the Sargasso Sea, close to Cuba, and await further instructions. And of course, it isn't easy to just wait when American subhunters are plying the ocean with their sonar, dropping sonar buoys, in search of them while planes are flying overhead, just hoping to catch a submarine breaching the surface to recharge its batteries. And like I alluded to earlier, since the fleet is composed of these diesel-electric subs that require surfacing to recharge their battery, this puts the subs in real danger of being detected. In order to keep themselves appraised of what's going on on the surface, they listen to news reports from Miami, which speak of an imminent invasion, Kennedy's quarantine, as well as the suspicion of Soviet subs operating near Cuba. And during this time, JFK makes it clear in a public message to the nation that any nuclear attack on the U.S. will be met with a retaliatory strike against the Soviet Union. So the submariners, unsure of how much of this intercepted intelligence is trustworthy, still continue to remain cut off from Moscow. So the confusion is just starting to set in. They don't truly know what's going on on the surface. And as they wait, their physical living conditions aboard the submarine begin to deteriorate. You see, these specific submarines that they were using were designed for navigating colder waters, which makes sense. I mean, the part of the world where Russia is is obviously a lot colder than Cuba, which is much closer to the equator. And so these subs just aren't meant to be cruising through the warmer waters around Cuba for an extended period of time, and it begins to show. The air conditioning aboard the B-59 begins to fail, forcing the submariners to work in unbearably hot conditions. Among the sources I read, one said that in certain rooms on the sub, the temperature even rose to as high as 122 degrees. Rations are cut severely. Each man's daily water ration is cut to one cup of water a day, which for a grown man is unacceptable, given that the temperatures aboard had reached well over 100 degrees and they were expected to work and do their duties throughout the day. And of course, due to aggressive sub-hunting taking place, the B-59 couldn't afford to surface to recharge its battery. Add on to all this the fact that weeks after receiving orders to hold their position, the fleet still hasn't received new orders from Moscow, and you have the high-stress, high-stakes situation that the crew aboard the B-59 were faced with. Add on to this the fact that we can probably safely assume that the crew on board weren't sleeping too well. I mean, it was super hot, they were under a lot of stress, and you have the perfect scenario for a costly mistake or rash decision to be made. And remember, while the fleet hadn't received new orders from Moscow, the captains on board were still empowered to use their nuclear torpedoes if they felt threatened. And I'm not sure what's more threatening than a highly committed, highly effective enemy effort to hunt you down. And those aboard the subs lacked intelligence to know what discovery could mean for them, as well as what was going on on the surface. I mean, for all they knew, World War III could have already broken out while they were hiding well below the ocean's surface. And then the worst happened. The American subhunters managed to locate three of the four subs in Arkhipov's fleet, including his own. So the game of hide-and-seek now became a game of cat-and-mouse for the B-59, where neither side realizes the full implications of what the other is doing or is capable of doing. The United States Navy vessel in pursuit of the B-59 began dropping depth charges as the equivalent of a warning shot, trying to communicate to the sub that it must surface in order to identify itself. 
The B-59, under the terrible conditions it had been enduring, and with only six hours of life left in its batteries, was put in a desperate situation. And here's where the misunderstanding on both sides comes very close to resulting in total catastrophe for the world. The U.S. Navy could probably have killed the sub if it wanted to, but was under orders from the president not to attack the sub, and so instead it planned on trying to force it to surface by continuing to shoot off these warning depth charges, and if that didn't work, to chase it around until its batteries were totally exhausted, forcing it to the surface. But little did the Navy know that the B-59 and her sisters were each armed with a nuclear torpedo and the clearance to fire without the nod from Moscow. And what's more threatening, like we just said, than a group of enemy sub-hunters who are out to, in their minds, destroy you while you're aboard a sub that's batteries are dying, taking away your ability to do anything to save yourself. The B-59's pursuers had no idea of the potential danger that they were in by pursuing and harassing this particular sub and seeking to force it to surface, something that the captain of the sub was desperately trying to avoid. You see, the captain of the B-59, Valentin Grigorievich Savitsky, I hope I got that right, was unsure that the depth charges were in fact warning shots. When he thought about it, his heat-fatigued brain couldn't be sure that war hadn't already broken out on the surface. He's reported to have said, quote, Maybe the war has already started up there. We're going to blast them now. We will die, but we will sink them all. We will not become the shame of the fleet. And so the captain made the decision that he wanted to fire his sub's nuclear torpedo. And when he brought his decision to the sub's political officer, Ivan Simonovich Maslenikov, the political officer agreed. The only thing stopping them from using their secret weapon was the wild card on board, Arkhipov, the third party, the chief of staff of the flotilla, who had to agree in order to fire. And although at the time the captain and political officer were likely thinking mainly of their own safety and the success of their mission in the face of a ton of pressure and impending sense of doom if they did nothing, the consequences of launching that torpedo would have immediate ripple effects that could cause the very world war Albert Einstein cautioned against. And that's what makes this situation so scary. One submarine, one, seeking to evade capture, had the option to throw the first punch, which would inevitably lead to a counterpunch by the U.S. that had the potential to destroy humankind as we know it. One submarine had the power to do that. And given the fact that it took until 2002 for this nuclear near-miss to be understood in its entirety, if your mind works any way like mine, it makes you start to wonder how many other cases just like this happened, or rather, almost happened. But somehow, by divine providence, if you believe in that, or more likely the randomness of chance, Arkhipov was there that day, and so unlike the other ships in the fleet, there was that third party that had to agree to launching this, and he was in a position of power to do something about that. And so he somehow managed to view this whole situation with a much clearer head than the two men in the room with him. And here's where our story becomes like 12 Angry Men, but in the sense that we are not in that room where that whole movie takes place. We're only on the outside knowing the outcome that the jurors come to and the impact that it had on the life of the young man in the movie who was accused of capital murder. And in the same way, we will never truly know what Arkhipov said to Captain Savitsky and political officer Maslenikov. Their conversation is yet another thing that Arkhipov took to his grave. Do 
potentially in part to the shame that followed him upon his return to the motherland. All we know is that on that day, instead of authorizing the launch of their sub's special weapon using the two keys entrusted to them, the B-59 surfaced. And due to the fact that it was in international waters and not in the quarantine zone, the B-59 was not searched by the U.S. Navy, so they had no idea that there was actually this nuclear torpedo on board. And instead, the sub was turned around and headed back home. It wasn't until 50 years later that both sides fully understood how close that they had come to an all-out nuclear war. And it was in the wake of this understanding that Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov came to be viewed by both sides as a hero. His courageousness in the face of unimaginable stress and his ability in the face of that to have a level head and choose to take a stand and face unknown danger as opposed to delivering that first punch, which was all that was needed to bring about untold destruction, it is hard to truly appreciate. I don't think any of us, hopefully, will ever have to be in that situation. So it's really hard to imagine what it was actually like. But thank goodness that he chose not to go with the the pressure that the other two were giving him to, to launch. Because despite how unimaginable it is to place ourselves in Arkhipov's shoes that day and figure out how and why he made the decision he made, that decision almost definitely saved humanity from World War III and potential total annihilation. So if you're looking for someone to thank for your ability to enjoy life, the big things, you know, the, the weddings, the having kids, um, you know, whatever the big things are, acing the SAT, getting all A's, and the small things, doing your laundry, you know, that calming cup of coffee on a beautiful morning, anything that you enjoy in life, you have to, in part, thank Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov for. And that's about it for this story. I know this episode was a little different from the shows that we normally put out, but I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the Almost Presidents podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast. And also, if you feel like taking the time to rate us and leave a review of our show, it really helps us out when you do. So if you have the time and you feel like doing that, that would be much appreciated. And also, be sure to join in on all the fun that we're having with our listeners on social media. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching the Almost Presidents Podcast. Each week on our social media accounts, you'll get to see Kevin and I go head-to-head nominating a real or imagined uh, candidate for president and pitching their platform. And based on your likes and comments, you get to decide each week who wins. So we've been having a lot of fun with that. We've also been having a good time running our Two Truths and a Lie series for U.S. presidents for you to test your knowledge about U.S. presidents of the past. And so far, I have to say, our listeners have been knocking this challenge out of the park. It's been really hard to stump you all with a lie. So clearly, you all know your history very well, potentially even better than us. And lastly, we would love to hear your feedback and thoughts about the show. You can email us them at the almost presidents podcast at gmail.com. That's the almost presidents podcast at gmail.com. And as far as the show goes, we'll be back in your feeds in two weeks with a brand new show on Bobby Kennedy's 1968 run for the presidency that I think you're really going to like. And as always, thank you for all your support, folks, and we will talk to you then.